the Formed Book Club. Catholic book lovers unpacking good books chapter by chapter. Welcome to the Formed Book Club with Vivian Dudo and myself and Father Fessard in Ignatius Press, Joseph Pierce in South Carolina, and Thomas Jacoby, who sometimes speaks here, but you can't see him very often. So our technical person here, he just had his first child, a son, his wife did, and they did together, named him James, so it's Jacobus Jacobi. That'll be a great Latin tombstone eventually, 100 years from now. Um, we're continuing our discussion of the lost Mandate of Heaven by Jeffrey Shaw, the American betrayal of No Din Diem, President of Vietnam, and this is history, 50 years ago or more, but it's frighteningly present. I mean, it's an object lesson. It, it's a lesson of what we as Americans should insist on if we can in terms of our foreign policy, how we treat other countries and other rulers. Um, we left off in the midst of uh, the chapter, we continue the Laotian question, and we're going to start again on page 98. There's Vietnam, this a very thin country, which almost has like a, a like a bee, you know, that wasp goes like that, with Laos or Laos right next to it. And if you were to have a war inside of Vietnam going from north to south, you'd be constricted. But if you get a chance to go to Laos, you're on the flanks all the way down the country. Yep. I mean, how, how, how was that not seen? Anyway, let, let's continue here. The, well, that's my Laosian question. Well, uh, it, 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 I don't think it's so much a matter that it wasn't seen, but I think, as Shaw points out, President Kennedy uh, did not want to expand the war, uh, military action, that is, and because he was afraid of it could become nuclear, it could be World War III. I mean, these are the things we hear every time America gets engaged militarily somewhere in the world, that we could go nuclear, we could go to World War III. I mean, that's always a risk. And so he thought, well, a diplomatic solution then is the way to go. And this Laotian neutrality, let's make the country neutral and keep everybody out. That was the idea. In a way, it was a noble idea. But if it wasn't going to be enforced, which we know it wasn't, then Vietnam was going to be put into an impossible situation. And they should have known it wouldn't be. They I mean, should have known it wouldn't supporting be. the North Vietnamese except Russia, right? And in fact, that's what Shaw says on the page 98, the uh, third full paragraph down, the very first line, it should have been obvious to the Kennedy administration that the North Vietnamese had no intention of honoring Laotian neutrality because right. they had openly displayed a negative attitude and so on. Well, that's why, because to, to alliterate what you said earlier, Vivian, I mean, yes, uh, the best face you could put upon it was it uh, was nobility, right? The, the, the effort to, the neutrality was a new, noble aim. Uh, but it's also naive. Yes. Uh, the, the problem is what what we have here is naivete because clearly that the, the communist real politic was just going to use this as a stepping stone to get what he wanted. That's right. And uh, Shaw says further on ninety nine, the bottom of the first full paragraph, that North Vietnam was exercising complete suzerainty. 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 Thank you over much of Laos. You know, it was working on this book that I first got introduced to that term, never heard it before, had to look it up. Basically, they had total control over the country. 
And uh, and now this made DM in the next graph even more doubtful of the Americans, their judgment, their intentions, and so on. Uh, and as we know, the relationship between President Diem and the United States was already strained. This sure didn't help. Yeah, I mean, it says that on page 99, the communists achieved a net gain out of the Laotian affair and the negotiated settlement served only to cement that this gain in writing. In other words, that basically that they used the letter of the law once the agreement had been signed to That's ensure right. that those who were going to play fair, in other words, the Americans and the, and the South Vietnamese had no choice but to play fair, um, uh, whereas the communists had no intention of actually taking any notice of it, but it meant that they could point the finger uh, at, at any any infraction of the agreement by uh, by the Americans. And yet they didn't remove their troops. They didn't, and so as one wonders, well, how did such a bad deal then get pushed through? And this is where this Avril Harriman comes to play, right? That he was the chief negotiator, the chief architect of this deal. He had had this experience with Soviets, so people thought he was capable uh, of this. He made him. He asked uh, Kennedy to make him ambassador at large, which was a in a, a role in, invented for him. And, well, what I found um, scary there, Vivian, is the fact that you know it was because he was one of the major um, uh, donors to the Kennedy election campaign that basically he bought the position, uh, and it was made perfectly clear here. Um, uh, where are we? Uh, that his financial back. This is the middle of page one hundred. Um, that his financial back of Kennedy's presidential campaign made him a key figure in the Kennedy administration. Mm. Um, he, he he could not overlook the venerable Harriman when time came to make political appointments. Soon mm -hmm. after the election, special advisors after Schlesinger and John Kenneth Galbraith drove this point home to the new president, who had paid all his political debts except to Harriman. When they told Kennedy that Democratic administration without him was unthinkable, <laughs> he asked Harriman to design his own job within DOS. On December 30, 1960, Harriman was sworn in as ambassador at large a role with historic president as it once was once held by Benjamin Franklin. So, you know, basically this man buys himself into the position and then has an absolutely disastrous impact. Now, but it's also there. true that he did have a lot of uh, experience and was well thought of as a diplomat. He's mm -hmm. had different roles. Now, I don't know about his personal life, his hostility towards things which might be religious or something like that, or DMV is a Catholic, but uh, he, he did have some qualifications. It wasn't just put into a job as uh, you know, a sinecure for him. I want to go back to the point you made, the, the, uh, Vivian, about you know we should have known that we had to be, had to, to monitor this thing. Mm -hmm. And it's you know it's one of Reagan's famous and rather paradoxical expressions: trust but verify. Mm -hmm. You know, we, uh, you really trust if you're verifying. But in international relations, you want to try and be trusting, but you have to have some kind of a mechanism by which. You know, you verify because also you're not dealing with other people directly, especially in the United States. We have a different president every four years. So who knows how someone's going to interpret a treaty made under a different administration? So, yeah, on both sides, you have to say, yeah, we agree to do this, you know, to help solve this problem. But we're both going to give each other the right to inspect. Right. That's right. That's what should have been done. And it's not just the author's uh, opinion that this was a disastrous deal, because as he points out on 103 toward the bottom, the Ho Chi Minh Trail got later dubbed the Avril Harriman Memorial Highway. 
So clearly uh, there were more people uh, with eyes to see what was going on. And Nolting even went further on 104 in the middle. Um, the author says that Nolting thought the deal was immoral for the U.S. government to break promises it had made to DM and, yes. give him a, and give him a situation. He'd be in a terrible position on 105. It would give North Vietnam free reign with its troops in Laos while preventing the South Vietnamese and their allies from incursions into Laos to defend themselves. So you're wondering if that, you know, if you're going to say you can't have any incursions into the country, how are you going to monitor it? Back to what you mentioned on page 104 at the middle, though, you, at the end of that, uh, because Nolting thought it was immoral for the U.S. government to make promises it made to President Jim. According to Nolting, Herman had retorted that they were not working for God, but for the Kennedy administration. Yes, a which telling... Which say, well, what do you mean morals? What do you mean morals? Right, a telling remark. And then when we see on the opposite page the disrespect that Harriman showed DM in person, turning off his hearing aid when he's talking. Can you imagine being meeting with a head of state, any head of state, and turning off your hearing aid? I mean, unbelievable. Or that he, you know, acted as though he were dozing, or maybe he even was sleeping. Who knows? I mean, the man had nothing but contempt for DM. But, you know, that, that goes, does go back to say, and I take your point that he had some experience um, dealing with the Soviets. Um, but this is, I mean, this, this is sort of man that, uh, you know, is, is plutocracy. He's using his wealth to wield power and to leverage himself into positions of power, um, wanting payback from the president. And again, just if we can go back to page 102, the, the beginning of that first paragraph there, first full paragraph, regardless of his triumph, um, so this is Harriman's triumph, in getting the Soviets to sign the Declaration of Neutrality, in his haste to prove himself to Kennedy, Harriman had overlooked the fact that signatures on a piece of paper were one thing, while the reality on the ground was quite another. So again, I'll come back to the word naive, a naivete, um, that, you know, he's, he's, yeah, that, he's, he has to, I, I can't, think he can be anything but naive. So if he's experienced, why the naivete? I don't really understand that. That is a puzzle, isn't it? Yeah. How could a I man mean, with all this diplomatic experience uh, with the Soviets be naive? Yeah. Well, on so page I, 101, four lines down, Harriman, based on his experience, Harriman was convinced during the Laos negotiations that the Soviets would keep their promise to bring necessary pressure to bear on the path at Laos and their direct sponsors in North Vietnamese to abide by the agreement. But he worked with the Soviets all these years. I know. How could he not know their perfidy? I just don't get that. But even if you trust them, I think you still, in these kinds of things, you've got to have some kind of mechanism for verification. That's right. But the, the look at this telling line at the end of what you just read. According to Ambassador Nolting, Harriman told him he based his confidence in the Soviets on his expert fingertips feeling. Nolting replied that his fingertips told him just the reverse. <laughs> <laughs> but I have to say, <laughs> the oldest by far among us, that uh, I made a lot of mistakes in life, but I've also made a lot of good decisions. But sometimes I've not, I followed what was against my intuition. It's almost always gone wrong. So normally my my position now is as the elder in the room, I said, look, we'll discuss it. But if I feel it's wrong, we're doing it the other way, you know. So I can under I understand Herman from an old man's perspective. You know, he trusts his intuition. Right, right. Yes, but, you're, but, you're, but what you've just said, that, that, you know, that you, you trusted your intuition when you were young and naive and you made mistakes. 
and now you're old and not naive and you trust your intuition, but it's, it's a much more conservative intuition than it was when you were younger. So the, 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 the point true. is that your wisdom has, made, has, has informed your intuition, shall we say. Well, to, to, to go off point a little, I hope no one minds, but there was a uh, big study done on CEOs some years ago. It was published in the Wall Street Journal. A report about it was published in the Wall Street Journal. And uh, according to this report, the best CEOs ever were men who do just as Father Fessio describes he does. You talk to a bunch of people, you take in the data, you evaluate the data, but the end of the but the but, but the end point is you go with your gut. And they were saying that all the best leaders actually operate this way. Now sometimes they do make mistakes. Their gut isn't always right. Could have had a bad supper, <laughs> you know. But the point is, is that that's what you pay leaders to do actually, to make judgments that I got all this information and I might not be able to explain it to you, but this is what we're going to do. What's frightening to me is that, you know, like around here, we would just want to publish book or not, or whether we're going to, uh, I don't know, build a warehouse or not. The consequences, one way or the other, are not that momentous, but we're talking about a government, a people, yeah. millions of people, and someone, we're saying, well, he should be removed. What? My gut says he should be removed? Wait a minute, who am I to be saying something like that? Right. Oh, well, I'm the best I'm the most powerful in the world. We, we can get our way, right? I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. This is really... Yeah. I mean, obviously, JFK was assassinated, so we have no way of knowing how things might have been. But what must his conscience, what would his conscience have told him? You know, as the, the Vietnam War uh, progressed, regressed, whatever, um, uh, as a consequence of these 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 absolutely atrocious decisions based upon ill faith and prejudice um, uh, and wrongheadedness and naivete. I mean, you know, because he, not only is this this innocent holy man DM is going to be assassinated, but there are going to be millions of people, what hundreds of thousands, I don't know the dead death count, but hundreds of thousands of people that are die, dying in consequence. And then the hundreds of thousands of refugees and. It just goes on and on. The continuing uh, uh, oppression of the Vietnamese people. And yeah, so it's, uh, you know, Henry Kissinger just died, right? And uh, he played a role in getting us out of Vietnam. And, uh, you know, there are people who call him a war criminal for his involvement. And then there are people who lionize him as being one of the greatest diplomatic geniuses of our time and so on. So, you know, I, I've also heard it said about great leaders, they're going to make mistakes. The main thing is, do their good judgments outweigh the mistakes they make? Right. You know, and uh, you hope on the balance that they do. But you're at the stakes that these guys are operating. I don't think they always do. Yeah, and it's also motive. I mean, uh, do, do we believe they are they 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 are bona fide or mala fide? Right? I mean, are they acting in good faith or bad faith? And that that's that's the whole point. If someone's just purely self-serving. Or egotistical, um, or, or ideologically driven, so he's not seeing things objectively at all. Um, then obviously that person is dangerous to have in a position of power. Yeah, and we'll we'll see going forward uh, how the so-called climate of opinion was pretty massively manipulated in such a way that you you would excuse most people for having a bad view of them because it was he was being attacked in the, the media from every side by people who were there in Vietnam. And so, you know, if you, if you trust 
those people who are the journalists, then of course you're going to think like a Herman thought. And as uh, and as in, in the terms of this high stakes decision, this agreement, uh, the author here at the end of this chapter says that this was the foundation for the tragic ending of our involvement in Vietnam. This really was the beginning of the end, the Laotian Neutrality Agreement. Important point. This neutrality agreement with Laos, which was not verified, and which because of the of the, the antagonism that arose between Diem and his administration in the United States, you know, led to these consequences, which ultimately were a disaster. Yeah. Page, chapter five, the counterinsurgency plan. Uh, you're in charge of it, I guess. Okay, well... Uh... We see the, the the key figure here is this uh, British uh, Robert Thompson, who had all this experience in Malaysia fighting counterinsurgencies. And what we're going to see in this chapter um, on the counterinsurgency plan uh, is that there's two counterinsurgency plans. There's the one that Washington is coming up with that relies more heavily on conventional means, and the one that... Uh, Thompson is trying to help the South Vietnamese forge for themselves that relies more on um, uh, obtaining legitimacy for political authority and giving the people the means by which they can defend themselves and run their own affairs. And these are uh, constantly in conflict with each other as throughout, throughout this chapter. So that's, that is my little intro. Um, does anybody want to uh, well, jump in? A little color to that on page top of one, top of page one ten. There, critics such as Marshall, however, had nothing else to offer Kennedy because this counterinsurgency strategic Hamlet plan was being proposed, and they were opposing it in Washington D.C. But they had nothing other to suggest than that America either withdraw or move in with massive force, and that seems to be the. In the middle of that is a thing called patience. You know, we, we can't solve it now, immediately, you that's know, right. or gung-ho, then let's pull out. And that's one reason we lost some recent wars, because our enemies are quite patient. That's right. That's right. Yeah, what, no, America what, is not well, known for... Sorry, what have said as well, you know, uh, page 102, about 10 lines down. Oh, no, that's no, sorry, no, sorry, not 102. Get in, get, get, get on. 108. At the end of that that top paragraph there, at yes. this stage, Rostow defended Diem. Later, under pressure from the Harriman group, he would turn against Diem. So one thing about this, again, the, the subplot, if we go back to page 103 and, and, and the end of that last full chapter, in the future, rather than quarrel with Harriman, leading DOS officials would tend either to get on board, in other words, to do as they're told, mm -hmm. for, you know, for career reasons, with his policy initiatives, or look the other way while he proceeded with his course of action. And that's why later on, of course, these people who were cynical but did, did, did not want to stand up to him would probably rejoice in the fact that they can call the Ho Chi Minh Trail the Avril Harrow Memorial Highway, but none of them either did or perhaps could do anything to stop him because they were basically self-serving and could see no, well, they, he had the power and there seemed to be no way of reasoning with him. Right. Now, you know, uh, Rostow, he was the uh, Deputy National Security Advisor, and General Maxwell Taylor, Chief Military Advisor, they came up with this Taylor-Rostow report. 
And it and what did it recommend? It recommended oh, this is all spelled out on 107 improved training of uh, army, you know, Vietnam army troops, greater use of helicopters, increased bombing of the north, and deployment of more U.S. combat troops. I mean, this is 1961 that this is what they're recommending. And so um, Rostow, in defending Diem at this point in time. I mean, he's defending perhaps that this is their leader and no, the, we don't need to take him out and all that. But Rostow at this time is, in fact, arguing for um, a more militaristic approach to the situation. And so it, 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 it under pressure from the Harriman group, well, part of that pressure, as we're going to see later on, is um, what appears to be a growing North Vietnamese strength. And so you know, some of those data points coming in are not that encouraging. And the more discouraging information you get, the more your patience wanes, you know? So um, anyway, just throw that out there that um, these men are evaluating the situation, the military men anyway, from a military perspective, and it's not looking good. And that's right. They, they don't have the patience to try to build the country from the bottom up. Basically, the difference between the U.S. counterinsurgency plan and the DM uh, Thompson oh, plan, the S we have the CIP and the SHP, a strategic hamlet. DM and, and Thompson are saying, we got to rebuild the country from the bottom up. And that is going to take time. And it does mean that while we're building up this area and getting a defense perimeter around it and then training these guys to defend themselves, it's true. The Viet Cong are going to get in at other places and it's going to look bad. But what's the alternative? If we don't do that, the country's going to be lost. Also, related to that, is that I think that Americans, generally, especially in those years, we had an altruistic view. They were trying to help people. We're wealthy. God has given us a lot. We want to help the underdog. We want to help those fighting communism. So we're here to help, you know. Uh, and because we are altruistic, we think other people look upon us, you know, with, you know, positive, you know, evaluation. But... The thing is, if they've just if they've just gotten rid of French colonial dominance, and yep. now the U.S. comes in, yep. and we think we're going to help you, but what do the North Vietnamese say? Hey, you guys want to be another colonial, you know, uh, uh, puppet or something like that? I, yeah. And therefore, the, the plan that Diem and his mission had of, of having local people for the police that were with the people in the hamlets. That overcame that option. We say, hey, we're gonna we're gonna wipe these guys out for you, but we get in there. Uh, now we're 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 just we're just replacing the French as the as the occupying force. Right, and we're going to see that spelled out in the next chapter, especially this policeman versus yes. soldiers yeah. chapter. The other yeah. thing that the U.S. was trying to do, by the way, not only bring more of our military in, but we wanted DM to turn the reins over the South Vietnamese Army over to us. Yeah. So the thing is, you know, from a Catholic perspective, a Catholic political philosophical perspective. Uh, that what the, what DM is uh, is arguing for is subsidiarity and solidarity. Right, the two things that are the very the two pillars of Catholic social teaching, and, and what the Americans are saying, no, that we want to come in from a, a, a top down, top heavy um, way of handling things. And and a, 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 apart from that being problematic on a political philosophical level, there is something supercilious about it. Right, and and. Uh, I do agree, Father. I'm not disagreeing. There, there. At best, there's an altruism 
be, behind uh, America's motives. And certainly, I think at grassroots level back in the United States, that was the case. But, um, but if you look here, maybe page 112, uh, General, General Lansdale um, believed that the root of the problem, uh, this is about halfway down the page, the root of the problem is America's condescending treatment of the South Vietnamese to actually look down upon these people as they don't know what they, what they well, we don't have to take them seriously, right? They're, I hate to say, use words, but backwards, primitive, right? Lacking our technology, uh, they're not as vast as we are. And then towards the top of page 113, many of the advisors treated the Vietnamese with frustration or contempt, which in turn only engendered more distrust and slowness of action. Now, if you feel you're being being treated, you know, uh, from a position of being patronized or the, the, the imperial occupier, you're not going to get cooperation. You're going to get resistance. In fact, if you treat people with contempt, what you will get is passive resistance. In other yeah. words, if you have the power to punish them and you treat them with contempt at the same time, they're not going to fight you directly. They're going to drag their feet. Or worse, join the Viet Cong. Right. Well, and the other thing that is breaking down this trust is um, is uh, the fa we, this comes up on 111 that Nolting's assignment, this is the middle of the page, Nolting's assignment as ambassador proved to be simply a pause in the U.S. plan to remove DM. Indeed, during Durbro's tenure, that was the ambassador before Nolting, uh, Department of State official John Steves had drawn up a top secret plan for replacing the Vietnamese president which was sent to Nolting as a contingency plan in the event DM did not follow American orders. You know, DM is not just paranoid. He might be that. But, you know, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. They were actually still out to get him. They were trying to use that as some kind of, you know, leverage. You know, we can take you out. And, and they did eventually. And that's going to earn mutual respect. That we're trying to help. We have the power. We have the military might. We have the wealth, but that doesn't give us the right to replace the leaders of other countries. Nope. You know. Well, we've uh, gone our thirty minutes. Should we? Uh, we have, uh -oh. Should we break now or and pick up later or? Just yeah, there's more to this chapter. We better do that. All right. So uh, we will bid you farewell for uh, another week. God bless you. See you next time. If you enjoyed this discussion, please help spread the word about the Forum Book Club by subscribing to the podcast and writing a review. You can sign up for weekly updates at formedbookclub.ignatius.com.